Then came wartime. <laughs> Great place to start, huh? Then came wartime. The people keened their swords. They made weapons of plowshares. The waters of Jordan piled up, and Israel entered Canaan. Joshua led them, and the wild lion, lion Caleb was with them. Like a storm, they entered the land. Like a river in spring, they flooded the country. Some towns they burned, others they spared. Swiftly they moved, for time was not on their side. Joshua divided the tribes. He issued his orders. Quickly, they sought out the opponents Yahweh proscribed. Harem, a ban, a thing set apart. That is the term for Joshua's wars. It is not in itself a bloodthirsty word. An Israelite could give God a field. That field would be harem too. Many things could be set aside for Yahweh. In the wars, it meant giving something over completely. Who was under that ban? Anakim, Rephaim, Martu. These were giants. Israel knew giants already. They had slain the witch kings, Sihon and Og, and Og was the last of the Rephaim. His unclean spirit lingered long afterward. But in Canaan, does this sound right? I got like lots of popping and crackling. You okay out there? Okay, cool. It just sounds weird up here. Okay. No problem. Just making sure y'all are all right. There were many clans who knew the rituals and the methods of false incarnation the flood had destroyed. Their towns were harem, and they burned until even the stones cracked. In many places, only ashes remained or should have. Israel did not succeed. Manasseh did not drive out occupants of Bethshean. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the occupants of Kitron. The list is long. Asher, Naphtali, Dan, these all abandoned the work. And so many giants and many priests and many sibilant servants remained. They stayed in Canaan like venomous spores, hiding unclean partnerships, spreading rebellion, whispering to ghosts, spirits, their masters also remained, in hiding at first, but in the daylight afterward. Oh, it seemed hopeful for a while. At Bethel, they set up the tabernacle. The angel of the Lord who led them from Egypt was often seen. Visions were not rare. Joshua made war with the Shadu chieftains a long time. He crossed the Jordan and took the land and split it up and served the Lord. And even so, before he died, he knew disaster was coming. When he set up an altar, he saw this. He renewed the covenant. And yet he could tell, choose today, he said, who you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. We will also, the people replied, yet as they spoke, their eyes slipped sideways to their neighbor's wives and their neighbor's fields and the altars far off. These they had desecrated, but the people knew where they were. They had not forgotten the rituals there, the gluttonous feasts and the profusions of flesh. You won't do it, Joshua said. His eyes, though pale, saw far. And so this stone I set up, I will remember your broken promise. He dismissed the people and died and all his generation with them. Then there came a new generation that did not know the Lord. Apostasy is swifter than ravens. Rebellion is a crop that does not fail. The people defected. They sought out Canaanite superstition and learned of the Baals. Asherah also they enshrined. Asherah, old and vile these are, even among rebel angels, and their worship is not songs. 
It is sacrifice and intercourse and murder. It is bloodletting and summoning and incantation. It is death itself and dust in the mouth. At last, Yahweh relented. He gave the people what they chose. The angel of the Lord himself went up from Gilgal to weeping, and Israel knew what that meant. Yahweh was leaving. The people did not want him. He would go. When he spoke to them, it was like God beholding Adam again. I brought you up from Egypt, he said. Into the land I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And truly, he had been faithful. The Lord had done all that he said. The people had not. What have you done, he asked. I will give you what you want. I will not drive out these people, nor their gods that you have chosen. They will be a snare on your neck, he said. They will choke you and rule you and squeeze out your life's breath, he lamented. Did you not know? Then he withdrew. Blood, blood, blood. Blood came afterward. Israel was oppressed by rebellious spirits and the peoples that served them, and their sins were heavy. Often they cried out. Often God sent deliverers. These were strange women and men, some faithful, some less so. The judges. The most famous of these is a debaucher named for a demon, Shamash, which is also Samson. The most successful fails in the end. There was no king. Violence was everywhere. Israel was vile, dark as the civilizations of Tel el-Hammam, even Sodom and Gomorrah, who knew demonic rituals so well, they tried to force themselves on angels indeed. There was no king. Now, what I just read is not from the Bible, but that is the story of the Bible with a little part I'm going to read at the end if there's time. That is the story told from the time that Moses and that great deliverance happened that we just got done singing about to where we are in the Bible right now. There was no king in Israel. We're in Judges 9, by the way, if you'd like to turn there. And we're going to read uh, a lot tonight. I've got eight pages of notes, 60 verses, 100 dramatic pauses, and about 20 minutes to do it all in. Tonight's message is sort of the X-rated Old Testament version of Colin's message this morning, if you were here for that, which was fantastic. Our story tonight is set in, gosh, one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. This is what scholars say. They, they believe that, in fact, this chapter is basically what you would have if the Bible, if the entire Bible was written as a Canaanite text, that is Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9 is the Bible Canaanized with no Yahweh looking out for them. I mean, he's there, but not. And you'll see what I mean by that. Now, what I did just read, by the way, was a fantastic excerpt from a book called The Paradise King by Blaine Eldridge. Fantastic book, a fantastic writer. And it's the story of Jesus. But there's a lot of, you know, bad stuff that Jesus had to rescue us from in the story of Jesus. So what I just read, it's, it's about Jesus. It's about the rescue plan. It's about God himself. But the message tonight contrasts Jesus, the, the paradise king, against another king. And in this story, which is, again, nestled deeply in Scripture, it's, a, it's this dark story about the first king that Israel thought they wanted. Scholars and Bible nerds call him the Bramble King. We'll see why in a minute. The Thornbush King. And no, it's not Saul. 
by the way. Saul was actually not the first king in the Israelite. Um, it, 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 it was non-monarchical, um, which is, anyway, he, he wasn't the first official king, okay? Saul was the first official king, and of course, David, the first official, official king, if you know your Bible, okay? The first king actually um, endorsed, really, by God. So, again, this story is very dark. What would it look like if the Israelites were fully Canaanized, if the Bible were a Canaanite text? Here's just a few things about this. This is interesting. Throughout this story, there is no personal covenant name. This is 60 verses. This is a big story. This is the longest single story, the longest passage in Judges. And Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, is not named by his personal covenant name. The service you'll see here of who they are serving is Baal Berit. Okay, Baal Berit, that's how you would say it. It's the Lord of the covenant. That's who they are serving. So you'll see his mention a lot, his name mentioned a lot. Also, you'll notice that uh, the name of Gideon in here, have you ever wondered why there's a Gideon and then there's this other guy? Uh, growing up, I always heard people call him Zerubbabel. So I'm probably just going to say that tonight because why not? Uh, Zerubbabel. It's a really fun name. Zerubbabel or Jerubbabel. It's all the same thing. Kind of fun to say. It's Yerubbaal. Yerubbaal is how you would say that in Hebrew. And it means let him contend with Baal. Let him contend with Baal. Gideon's father gave him that name. But it's his Canaanite name. It could have just said Gideon. That would be his Hebrew name. But this is his Canaanite name we find in this text. And it's the perfect example of, if you remember the last time I taught Judges, I made kind of a big deal out of this idea that you have the literal story, you have what actually happened, but then you have the literary retelling of the Bible, right? We realized that there wasn't like a videographer and like a tablet guy like, like walking around, like following around Gideon, like writing down exactly what he did, right? Some of these stories were written later. Some people think that the prophet Samuel is who wrote the book of Judges. And so you, you have what actually happened, but how the story is told matters as well. So it's the perfect example of looking at both the literary and the literal angle of things. What literally happened was this story, but the way it was told, even though God acts and God is reflected in this chapter, his name is not used, only the name El. Okay, the name El, which some of you, that's one of the Hebrew words that most of us know, El, Elohim. Uh, it can mean God as in the God of the Bible, and in this case, it does. However, guess what the name of the creator in Canaanite religion was? El. El was the personal name, like Jehovah or Yahweh for the Hebrews. El was the personal name of the creator in the Canaanite lore and mindset and world. So the idea is setting up this Canaanized version of Israel. That's who they had become. Dark. Okay, we have to move very quickly. We have to move very quickly. And I'm, I'm not going to bury the lead. I'm going to just give you the message, okay? This is the message. If you're taking notes, write these three things down. If not, try to remember them as we go through this story with uh, lightning speed. I'm from New Jersey. I can talk fast. I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about y'all, okay? If you can listen fast, you're going to need to really try to stay with me, okay? Here's the message, okay, in, in, in three, three quick pieces. Number one, idolatry is the root of all sin. Idolatry is the root of all sin. You said, I thought sin, like, originated with, with Satan. L let me help you with something real quick. I challenge you. I'm willing to be wrong, by the way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, like, you know, some super expert here. Like, I get stuff wrong a lot. Just ask Tiffany, okay? I get stuff wrong a lot. 
I challenge you to find me a place in the Bible where Satan worship was practiced. They didn't worship Satan. Why? Satan is not worthy of worship, and he doesn't even try. Satan's job is to get your eyes off of the Lord. That's it. He'll point to anything else. Back in their day, it was demons, right? Sometimes, I think sometimes it is demons today for some people. For some of us, it's whatever you want to think about. Whatever it is in your heart, in your mind, in your life that takes the place of God, okay? That's what Satan tries to point to, okay? So idolatry is the root of all sin. Second, unrelated, selfish ambition leads to destruction. It's that simple. When you're thinking about yourself, when you're not committed to Christ, like this morning we talked about, when instead you are committed to your own life and your own dreams, your own desires, your own goals, by the way, all those things are good, but if not in the context of your relationship to Christ, they don't matter and they only lead to destruction, and we're going to find the practical and logical outworking of that in this text. And then thirdly, the only rescue, the only real rescue is the work of Christ. He's the only hope we have for a life not completely drowned by sorrows and um, untenable for us to, to live. Okay, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall, reap, uh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. It's interesting. God is not mocked. The word mocked from that text is the Greek word, mikterizo, mikterizo. It's indicative of the action of turning up one's nose, of turning up one's nose. Now, I, I, we all kind of know a little bit like what that means, but I thought I would check out Webster and just see what they had to say about it, naturally speaking. I didn't go to like the 1838 one or whatever, so I apologize. I just Googled it, Okay. And the, uh, the action of turning up one's nose, according to Webster's, is, I thought this was good, to refuse to take or accept something because it is not good enough. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. No one will stand before God one day and turn up their nose and say, you weren't good enough. He will say, I was, I am, I will always be good enough. My gift was given to you. You are the one who did not take it. So as we quickly move through this message tonight, and I will try not to ramble, I want to preach a message that I've called The Rise and Fall of the Bramble King. God will not be mocked. Can we pray together? And then we're going to move through this text. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you so much. I thank you and praise you for the opportunity that you have given me to preach and to speak before these people tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to help them, to give them something they can take away today. Lord, that they would draw closer to you and they would realize... And do their best to stay away from the miserable end that can be brought by sin and destruction. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Really, chapter 9, the story of chapter 9 starts in chapter 8 and verse 30. So I'd like to start reading there. We're going to talk first about the scourge of idolatry on these people. The scourge of idolatry. And Gideon had three score and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. I thought I was doing bad with three sons and one wife. Can I get a witness? Gideon, <laughs> boy, Gideon really has it rough, okay? All right. And his concubine, that was in Shechem, and she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, 
and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash's father in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah of the Abezerites. And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again and went a-whoring after Balaam and made Baal Berit their god. So Balaam, when you see I am on the end of a name, that means it is plural. Okay, that's Hebrew for plural. There were multiple different iterations of Baal. They served Baal Berit or Baal Berith, uh, however you want to say it. If you want to feel in really Anglo-Saxon right now, say Baal Berith, amen. Um, made Baal Berith, Baal Berit their god. That means Lord of the Covenant. Apparently, maybe they served this iteration of Baal because they had made some covenant with him when Gideon died. Who knows? That's speculation. And the children of Israel remembered, not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. And boy, he had. He delivered them over and over and over again. And they remembered him not. Neither showed they kindness. Notice how quickly it shifts. Now that we're in the Canaanite version, now we're not talking about Gideon anymore. Look at that. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Yerubbaal, Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. The scourge of idolatry, a couple interesting things about this. If you remember from Hayden's lesson last time, he talked about how uh, the people wanted to make him a king. He said, no, I don't want to be your king, but if you want to bring me all your gold and silver and all that, and I'll make an ephod, and we can go, like, you know, have lots of parties, and you can pay, like, you know, tribute to me and all that, that'd be fine. You know, that'd be all right with me. No problem there. Uh, so Gideon says he didn't want to be a king. You can go back to verse, uh, chapter 8 and verse 22 and read and following. He didn't want to be a king. He just wanted to live like one, right? So he wanted the title without the responsibility, there's a lesson there, but we have to move, okay? Just think about that. The title without the responsibility. Hey, one comes with the other. Just wanted to live like a king, okay? He had 70 sons. Now, this number, uh, the, the, the number 70 comes up all over your Bible, okay? And so this is another literal versus literary thing. Maybe he had 73 sons. That's not an error in the, in the Bible, by the way. That's not how it works. Uh, in ancient texts, a lot of times there would be sort of a summarizing or a, um, in kingly texts like this, it would be called royalizing the number, okay? So 70 was the number of royalty um, and had to do with kings and such. Uh, and we find that out later that um, actually Baal, there were actually 70 sons of Baal as well. So very likely in line with the Canaanite flavor and inspiration of this text, uh, Gideon has the same number of sons, essentially, that Baal has. You see how that correlation works together. So that's kind of what's going on there. Now, the name Abimelech, okay, we see that he named his son Abimelech. That was in verse uh, number 31. The Shechemite uh, whore, essentially the, not whore, excuse me, uh, concubine that he uh, went after, uh, was, uh, uh, they had the son named Abimelech. And interesting, the name Abimelech, Abba, Abba, means father, Melech, means king, right? So Gideon didn't want to be king, but he named his son, my father is king. How about that? Pretty crazy. My father is king. Tells us what he really thought about himself. This level of idolatry, this was not like what we might call, again, uh, some of these words are a little graphic. I'm so sorry, but I told you this was the X-rated version, so just plug your ears if you don't, you know, that's not cool. Sunday night crowd, so we're good, right? Um, but this was not like mere harlotry, right? This was not just, oh, like, like, like the golden calf um, that Aaron made at the bottom of the mountain. This was not that. This was that, like, times 100, this was a total rejection of God, Yahweh, as their covenant God, and instead, 
worship of Baal. Okay, we're, we got 10 minutes left and we're finally to chapter 9. Amen. We are moving. All right. Next, the sin, or yeah, the, the, excuse me, the sin of selfish ambition. And Abimelech, the son of Yerubbaal, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them. And with all the family of the house of his mother, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it's better for you, either that all the sons of Zerubbabel, Yerubbaal, I'm going to kind of interchange these just to kind of give you a little bit of the flavor here without totally going crazy every time, which are three score and ten persons, seventy persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am also your bone and your flesh. So you want the other seventy sons of Gideon to rule over you, or do you want me, your favorite, to rule over you? And his mother's brethren, his kinfolk, spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem and all these words. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, well, he is our brother, right? And they gave him threescore and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, which Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. This is interesting. Okay, so number one, they're using resources that... We're from a false god, okay? Abimelech is using the resources of Baal uh, Barit. And there are times in your life where uh, maybe you think you're doing a good thing. Uh, do the ends always justify the, or the, do the means always justify the ends? Okay, I'll let you apply that for yourself. The answer is no, right? Uh, sometimes you can use faulty means. Now, Paul did say, whether in pretense or in truth, hey, thank God the gospel is preached. The point there is uh, God is going to use what he has to use to get done what he has to get done. That's not an excuse for you to do a bad thing in the name of a good thing. Does that make sense? Am I tracking? Okay, so... Uh, Abimelech hires what I call this ragtag dude brigade. Okay, the Bible calls them light and vain persons. Okay, another way that I put that uh, or that you can find it in different translations and such is worthless and reckless. Literally, he goes out and finds just anybody who will say, yeah, I'll join your cause, sure. If there's money involved, I'll go fight. I'll do whatever you want. The amount of money that he actually hired them for was a little bit less than in today's dollars, about 10 bucks a person. He wanted to hire these people to go and kill the rest of his brothers. The number works out to about $617. For reference, a slave in those days was worth 50 shekels. Okay, so um, it's really interesting. They're not even worth a whole shekel each, these guys. That's how worthless and reckless they are, or light and vain. So he went unto his father's house at Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Yerubbaal, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, or Yotam, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself and all the men of Shechem gathered together in all the house of Milo and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. So at this pillar, they decided to join up and make Abimelech, my father is king, Gideon. Gideon didn't want it, right? He didn't want the responsibility. He just wanted to get the benefits and reap the rewards. So instead, Abimelech says, hey, I'll be your king, but first I just need you guys to come help me, like, kill the rest of my brother so we don't have any problems with that, right? And what's, what's, what's sad is that this whole thing happens at, uh, we don't have time to go all into it, but at this pillar, the oak of the pillar 
is where they crowned him king. If you go back to Joshua 24, 25 and 26, it's the very place where Joshua said, hey, we're making a covenant here together that we're never going to go off and serve other gods. God brought us into this land, and he's not going to take us out of it. They made that commitment at the same place that they would later crown this Canaanite king. Really sad. Really sad. Again, like I said, uh, he came by this selfish ambition of his, pretty honest, because Gideon had it too. Uh, this is just a reminder, a little side thing, that you don't have to commit the sins of the Father, so to speak, right? You have personal agency in your Christian life. You can change. You don't have to be a product of whatever situation you grew up in or whatever limitations you feel like you have placed on you today because of what happened in the past. It's a new day, my friend. God is still God today. Let's move on. The solemn pronouncement. Verse 7. Read with me. And when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice, uh, excuse me, lifted up his voice and cried and said unto them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. He's going to tell this parable, this fable. And they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. But the olive tree said unto them, should I leave my fatness, wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou, and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou, and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And then said all the trees to the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, a bramble is a thorn bush. A thorn bush has no shade, right? This is irony. This is considered this fable that Jotham told. Perhaps one of the first, maybe the first, um, the fable, parable in all of ancient literature. Regardless of whether it was the first, it's one of the best. It's highly regarded by scholars as just being an incredible uh, display of what he was talking about here. And what was the point? The point of the parable was to show uh, ultimately that when God wants to bring something to pass, it's going to happen on God's time and in God's way, Right? Uh, why should the olive tree, right, leave its fatness? It, it, it does a good job being an olive tree. It doesn't need to go rule over anyone else or, or the fig tree, right? The fig tree said, well, if I come rule over you, I have to forsake my sweetness. The problem with, with a bramble is that a bramble is good for nothing but destruction. And, and really, if I had to end the, message, uh, end the message here, which I might have to because I have four minutes, right, uh, I would, ba I would basically say this, that, that really ultimately, ultimately, you can't force the will of God, right? It, this ambition that Abimelech showed in this scenario was for the wrong reasons. It was for love of self. It was, he was building his own kingdom. And when you build your own kingdom, the end is absolutely miserable. This is... This is literally the outworking of a, of, of a miserable life, of a miserable existence, an existence without God. So 
again, uh, this fantastic parable that Jotham tells, and he basically, it's really interesting, he he uh, explains himself in verse 16. Now, therefore, if I have done truly and severely, uh, excuse me, and sincerely, in that ye have made Abimelech king, and if ye have dwelt well or dealt well with uh, Yerubbaal and his house, and ye have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands, for my father fought for you and adventured his life far and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, and ye are risen up against my father's house this day and have slain his sons, 70 persons, three score and 10, upon the stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king of the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If ye have then dealt truly and sincerely with Yerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out with Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir or Beir and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. Probably after that speech, he needed a beer, and so that's where he went, all right? Listen. What's the, what's the point of this? Well, number one, I think it's funny. Jotham keeps getting away, right? The only reason Jotham's still alive is because he got away when, when the other sons were slain, okay? Here, he basically stands up on Mount Gerizim, which if you remember, we saw this in Joshua and in Deuteronomy, Mount Gerizim on one side and Mount Ebal on the other side. They basically make this big um, valley. It's sort of like a, uh, a natural amphitheater type of thing. It's where the, the blessings and the cursings were pronounced. And this is a curse, make no mistake, that Jotham is pronouncing on Abimelech and the people of Shechem. But he says it from the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim. All the cool little literary details in the story that just really give it, give it teeth between the, the, the pillar and, and the mountain. So let me summarize the rest of the story for you and, and get, to the, get to the end. And then I want Matt to sing at least a verse in a chorus if we have time of a, of a particular song. Essentially, here's what happens. The, uh, the forces, like Abimelech gets his people together, and um, they, um, God puts, after this, after this situation where Jotham is talking about this with the men of Shechem and pronounces this curse, God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, okay, these men that he wants to rule over. God sends an evil spirit, and he wants to essentially have them turn on each other. This is the beginning of God beginning to get just desserts in the story. So the story moves along. They uh, place basically sanctions on the people uh, of, of, of Abimelech and those who are trying to, um, basically they start robbing, the people of Shechem start robbing Abimelech and his forces whenever they start traveling by the way in order to get them to stop. He gets mad, obviously. Then there's this guy who comes out of nowhere named Gaal, and he's not in the story for uh, very long, but essentially what happens is Gaal comes in and says, you know, why are you guys praising this Abimelech character? Who is he to you? Why does he matter? You should be praising, they called him Hemor. He was the father or the founder of Shechem. If anything, you should be like praising this guy. And he's like, I don't see why I shouldn't be the ruler. So they get drunk and they have a big party. And uh, the long and short of it is that the governors of Vul, uh, who was serving under Abimelech, uh, deceived Gaal and his people. And eventually what happened is the, the contention between the people of Shechem and Abimelech got so bad that after they drove out Gaal and all of his people, 
they uh, actually went in and burned the entire town and killed all the townspeople when they went out to work. So they went out to work in the field. Abimelech says, uh-uh-uh, that ain't going to work. Um, I don't want you leaving this place, and so I'm just going to kill you, which that makes plenty of sense, right? Well, I mean, that's what he thought. And so he goes out into the fields, kills all the people uh, of Shechem that he could. And then finally what happens is they uh, make a play. They, they destroy the whole city. They, they raise it, not, not like R-A-I-S-E, R-A. I-Z-E-D, something like that. You know, the rays, like they literally destroy it, right? And they pour uh, salt all over the city so that it could not grow back. You pour salt all over uh, the crops and the land. It's basically toast. Um, there was also probably an ancient ritualistic thing with that, but uh, that's besides the point, okay? And so uh, Abimelech's feeling great at this point, okay? I just zoomed ahead like 40 verses, all right? Abimelech's feeling great. He's like, I'm on top of the world, Whatever Jotham said, that didn't come true. The people of Shechem are all destroyed. I got my way. I'm still the king of the people of Israel, and nobody's going to stop me. And he's feeling so good that he decides to go to another town, long about verse 50. And the name of the town is Thebes. Thebes. And he said, I'm feeling so good, I'm going to go take me another place, another city, another town, because that's what kings do, and Abimelech's the king, right? He made himself the king, the people made him the king, he's the king, so he's going to go take another place, and he, just as he's getting up to the top of the tower, and he's going to set fire to it, and you see this, the, he's going to like win this battle, and Abimelech is on top, he came into the tower, verse 52, and fought against it, and went hard under the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to break his skull. And he called hastily unto the young man, his armor bearer, and said unto him, Draw thy sword and slay me, that men may not say of me, a woman slew him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of, this is, I mean, I don't know why I always get the graphic stuff, but this is what happened, okay. And his, and, and his young man uh, thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man unto his place. Thus, this is God. Again, he's not mentioned by his, his covenant name. He's not mentioned by Yahweh here. He's mentioned by El. And it's a, a satirical and it's what's called polemical element of that too. It's taking shots at the Canaanite high God. But anyway, thus God, clearly meant and intended here to be the God of the Bible, rendered the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did unto his father in slaying his 70 brethren. And all of the evil of the men of Shechem did God render upon their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. I called that last point the sudden end of Abimelech. Listen, this is what happens. This story, what, what this story is doing is illustrating the end of the story where there is no Christ. You realize that if there had not been a plan the story would have gone no further than this. This was as bad as it gets. Israel became Canaanites. That was it. Boom. Done. Story over. But for God's grace. But for God's mercy. I'm going to take just a minute to read the rest of that story that I started earlier. It's just a couple sentences. But the Lord had a solution in mind. Remember, this is after the last thing I read was there was no king. But the Lord had a solution in mind. From ancient times, it had been prepared. In Moab, far from the sea, two women crossed the stricken ground, Naomi from Bethlehem and Ruth, a Moabite. 
Ruth was loyal, stout-hearted as Moses, and as she found shelter in the virtue of an old man named Boaz. Boaz was descended from Perez, who was born to Judah by Tamar. Boaz was faithful, and his men wore swords in the field. In that dark time, he married Ruth. With lawlessness on all sides, they were wed. And so it happened that Boaz, from Bethlehem, fathered Obed. Obed, it is well known, fathered Jesse, Jesse of the line of Judah, fathered David. So that's it. And, and so the question I have before you, Matt, please, if you don't mind, I would love for you to sing at least a verse and a chorus if you have time of that song, My King is Known. It's, it's a really simple question, a big story, lots there, lots I wanted to say, I didn't get to say. But here, here's the punchline. Who's your king? Right? Who is your king? Is it the Bramble King? Right? An oppressive, relentless king who offers what you think you want, but is nothing but a thorn bush. Remember, fire, destruction. That's how the story ended. Fire and destruction instead of the peace and comfort of God. So is your king the Bramble King or is it the Paradise King? The king who is known by mercy, grace, and loves you so much he sacrificed himself so you can have life eternal. Only one of those two kings is worthy of worship. Only one. Only one. So I want Matt just to sing a little bit of that song, My King is Known by Love. And just think on that tonight. Which king are you serving? Which king do you wake up every day and live for? That's the question before us.